0: Father, we come before you now to listen to your word. As was mentioned even earlier tonight, we show up here this evening in all sorts of different places with different struggles, different questions, different problems, but we all need to hear from you. So I ask now that through the power of your Holy Spirit, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Some of y'all know that a couple weeks ago, there was a group of RUF folks that went stargazing. And uh, as far as I could tell from the pictures I saw on the group me, seemed like it was a pretty good time. And if you went on that trip, you know that you had to drive a decent ways away from the city to be able to see the stars in their brightness and in their clarity, because artificial light uh, keeps us from being able to see the stars that are always there. Uh, That's something that I think most of us understand. What you might not know is that all things being equal, the same sort of thing happens the deeper that you go into a valley. So the deeper you go into a valley, the clearer and the brighter That stars shine above you. And the passage that Danny just read for us, Ephesians 2 1 through 10, is a passage that starts by inviting us, no matter where you're at here tonight, whether you identify as a Christian or still exploring the claims of the Bible, it starts by inviting us to climb down deeply into the valley, to see how deep and dark our natural condition is apart from Jesus. But the goal is not to make us feel bad or to give up hope, but actually to make the bright stars of the good news about Jesus more clear to us tonight. So as we climb down deep into the valley and focus on the bad news at the beginning in just a moment, just like Paul starts with the bad news, it's going to enable us by the end of the night to see the good news more clearly and the new kind of life that you can live if you trust in Jesus that flows out of that good news. Let's start with the bad news. What is God's verdict about the human condition? How would God diagnose the human heart and its natural condition apart from Jesus? How do you think God would answer that question if you were able to ask him. Well, we actually don't have to wonder because Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 actually give us God's answer to that question. To use medical terminology, God's verdict about human society in general, about human hearts in particular, is not that we are merely sick and in need of medicine. It's not that we are merely in trouble and in need of a little bit of help, what does it say right at the beginning of our passage? It says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Those two words that are mentioned right there at the beginning, trespasses and sins, are words in the Bible that are more or less used interchangeably, synonymously. So don't think of them as two totally separate categories, but Paul is using both of these words for the sake of emphasis, to bring to our minds all of the different kinds of ways that we could sin or rebel against God or run away from his home or worship something, make something ultimate other than him, all the different ways that we can do that. And yet the result is the same. The diagnosis is the same. We could put it this way, we could say whether you are a bad sinner, someone who is outwardly rebelling against God, living a lifestyle that is maybe obviously out of line with his law, whether that's true of you, or whether you're a good sinner, someone who does all the right religious things on the outside, but on the inside is full of pride and arrogance in your heart. No matter where you're at on that spectrum, the diagnosis is the same, you are dead, In your trespasses and sins. But it gets worse because that's just the very opening words of our passage. It's not just that you're dead and that means you're totally helpless to do anything about your condition on your own, but it's also that you have to grapple with these three great enemies. Three enemies that show up in lots of different places in the pages of the New Testament. And they show up clearly in our passage here this evening. The enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So look, at, look back at verse 2. Paul saying we're dead and our sins. Verse 2, we're following the course of this world. Now, we need to understand when Paul uses this term world... He's not suggesting that he or God somehow doesn't honor the goodness of creation or that the earth in and of itself is a bad thing. No, this is a technical term in Paul's thought that refers to human society and human systems as they stand in rebellion against God. So when we hear that we apart from Jesus, apart from God's initiation in our lives, are following the course of this world, what it's helping us to see is that the the question is not whether we are being influenced by a certain environment away from following God, away from living in relationship with him. It's not a question of whether that is happening, but how. So I want you to imagine tonight that you strike up a conversation with a fish, you know, like, like you do on a, on a Thursday night. Just you're striking up this conversation with a fish and you ask this fish about the water that he's swimming in. I know it's a silly analogy, but roll with me for a minute. You ask this fish about the water that he's swimming in. I think hypothetically this fish who can somehow have a conversation with you would respond by saying, what water? Like the, the, the water that the fish is swimming in is just his environment. He's not aware of it. It's affecting him every day, but he doesn't even know that he's swimming in it. And Paul is trying to say that the same sort of thing is going on when we think of the world, the sinful environment that we inhabit that is shaping us away from God and his good purposes in our lives, even though we might not be aware that we're in that environment. But we don't just inhabit a sinful environment. That's the first enemy, the world. We also face a powerful and personal enemy of our souls. The Bible teaches that there is someone who desires your short-term suffering and, if he can, your eternal destruction. Look at verse 2 again. It says, Naturally, apart from Jesus, apart from God's grace that we'll get to in a moment, we all follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. This prince here is the devil. It's Satan. It's the spiritual being who really exists. It's not a myth. It's not just evil personified, but someone who hates God and all that is good. And he's called here the prince of the power of the air because the devil is, even though we don't totally know what this means, he's given spiritual sovereignty over a spiritual kingdom that is not synonymous with this world that we can see with our eyes, but that exerts influence over it. Back in Ephesians 1.21, the passage we looked at last large group, We kind of skipped over these number of words that we're told are ultimately subjected to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. We're told about rule and authority and power and dominion that's been subjected to Jesus. And in Paul's letters, these are terms that actually refer to angelic and demonic forces that exert their influence in our world. And we're told that Satan is is the king, in a sense, of this kingdom. Now, recognizing that, we also need to say that the Bible makes it clear that the devil is not God's opposite. He's not like the evil version of God. Satan is a creature, and he's on a leash. He's like a rabid dog that is running around and trying to cause as much destruction as he can. But we we love to say here in RUF, that God is at work. We want to be training all of us to be paying attention to the ways that God is working, but we also need to have eyes to see that Satan is at work, that the prince of the power of the air is at work, the spirit who is now at work among the sons of disobedience, such that naturally, apart from God's initiation, every human being, as smart as they are, as gifted as they are, as kind as they might be, humanly speaking, every human being shows up actually as a slave of this prince, a slave of Satan. But then there's this third enemy. We also have to deal with our own sinful nature, which Paul calls the flesh in verse 3. Now again, the flesh is not our physicality. God loves our bodies. He made our bodies. Uh, Being an embodied person is not a bad thing. That was God's good design from the beginning. But this word flesh refers to our sinful nature, the sinful humanity in rebellion against God, the, the thing which inclines our hearts towards evil. The big picture of the Bible teaches not just that you are a sinner because you sin, but that you sin because you are a sinner. It's a part of your nature as you show up because of the sin of our first father, Adam. So what's the final result of all this bad news? We're we're almost to the good news, I promise. The final result is that we are under God's wrath. We're children of wrath. God's holy anger against sin, his righteous anger against sin that leads to his righteous judgment. And this fact that we are dead in our sin that we've considered at the beginning. It's not just that we're incapable of doing anything about our condition, although that's true. It's also that we are like the walking dead. We're like the zombies from The Last of Us, if any of y'all have seen that TV show. We're not only dead and unable of doing anything about our situation, but we're actively living in rebellion against God. And here's the thing that I really want to drive home for a moment before we get to the good news. This horribly dark diagnosis, God's verdict about humanity, is not just true of Nazi Germany and Mao's China. It's not just true of serial killers and members of the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I don't bring this up to argue that all cultures are equally broken. I don't think that's true. I'm not even bringing this up to argue that all sins are equally grave or serious or harmful. But the root problem for every human society and for every human heart is the same. Listen to these words from uh, a British pastor of the 20th century, John Stott. He said in these three verses, God is giving us the biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere. The biblical diagnosis of fallen man in fallen society everywhere. So here's the question. Are you going to believe God's verdict about you, apart from Jesus, apart from his grace, so we're about to get to you? Are you going to believe that verdict or some other diagnosis that feels more palatable or maybe makes you feel better about yourself? Uh, Up to this point, Ephesians has been a pretty encouraging letter. It's really been a letter full of praise to God and thanksgiving to God. So we could come to these words, these opening verses of Ephesians 2, and think, like, is Paul having a bad day? Like, is he hangry in his imprisonment and he's, like, taking it out on the Ephesians? He's not. Again, the goal is we're climbing deep down into the valley so that the bright stars of the gospel would shine more clearly to us. So let's turn to that now. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but here's the good news that starts with these two words in verse 4, but God. Two, Two of the best words in the whole Bible, in my opinion, but God. You were under God's wrath, but God is rich in mercy. You were dead in your sins, but God has made you alive in Christ. You were in bondage to evil powers, a slave to Satan, but God has raised you with Christ and seated you with him in the heavenly realms. You were without hope, unable to do anything on your own, but God intervened and initiated to move towards you and to rescue you from your horribly hopeless situation. And at the start, we're told here that God is rich in mercy. He's rich in it. His mercy's not going to run out. His mercy is far greater than our sin, as awful as it is, as Paul has been unpacking that in the first three verses. (coughs) We're told that he's rich in mercy to show that God is actually able to meet us in our desperate need. And next, we're told that God, in his love, has made us alive together with Christ. And when we're told about God's love, the great love with which he loves us, this is what it proves. This is what we need to remember. God's wrath, his righteous and holy anger against sin, and his love for sinners are not actually opposed to one another. They actually are both true about him. But it also shows us that God the Father is not the bad cop. There's a way of reading the Bible or of thinking about the Christian faith that's a little bit like this. You know, Jesus is the good cop. Like he came to sympathize with us in our weakness and sin. And he's defending us to the Father, God the Father, who is up in heaven kind of folding his arms and ready to like throw down a lightning bolt at us. But what is Paul saying here? God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It's because of God's great love that he sent Jesus Christ to live the life that we should have lived and then to die the death we deserve to die. It's because of God's great love that after Jesus' death, he was raised to new life. And after he was raised to new life, he ascended into heaven. And after he ascended into heaven, he sat down on a throne. And here's one of the amazing things about this passage. Paul is using terminology about us about our experience of what it means to be in relationship with God, to have salvation, rescue through him. He uses this terminology that maps onto the very story of Jesus. It's almost as if Paul is saying that the very things that God has accomplished for Jesus are in a real sense already true for you. It's as good as done that one day you will be raised just like Christ was raised and you'll be seated in glory just like he has been seated In glory. And that idea is actually strengthened in the next verse in verse 7, even though it might not seem that way right away. Look at it again. If you follow the logic of Paul's argument carefully, the coming ages of verse 7 are not things that are merely in the future, but the ages that have begun to come now and will continue to come until the day when Christ returns. There's this parallel between the the course of this world in verse 1, which could also be translated the age of this world, and the coming ages that have dawned in the appearance of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for you? It means right now, whether you feel it tonight or not, in the middle of stress of preparing for midterms, heartbreak because of broken relationships, difficult things going on in your life, right now, if your trust is in Jesus, God is pouring out on you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. And he's going to keep doing that again and again and again until you experience that in full when Christ returns. So here's the question that verse 8 helps us to answer. How do we actually begin to experience that? How can this good news that Jesus has accomplished with his life and death and resurrection connect with our stories, connect with our lives? Well, the answer is found in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There's something really, really important that this verse makes clear that is also at the same time easy to miss. Notice that this verse did not say, that you are saved by grace because of your faith. It says you are saved by grace through faith. It's not as if God looks at your life and he says, all right, let's be honest. Like, if I looked at your works, if I looked at the record of your obedience, there's no way that you would measure up. But instead of that, if, if your trust in me is strong enough, I'll, I'll accept you because of your trust in me rather than, this record of obedience that doesn't measure up to my standard. This is why this matters. The unshakable ground of your salvation if your trust is in Jesus is not in the strength of your faith but in the strength of your savior. It is by God's grace, because of his character, because of Jesus's actions for you in history that you can be saved and that means faith What does that word through means? It means faith is just open hands. It's just the way that you receive this incredible gift from God, the gift of eternal life that can start now and carries on forever and ever. And even your faith, even your faith, this passage tells us, is a gift from God. Uh, I want you to bear with me for a minute as I put on like my nerdy pastor hat, uh, because... uh, The word this, in verse 8, this is not your own doing, is a Greek neuter pronoun. In a minute, you'll know why this matters. It's a Greek neuter pronoun, and it's referring back to something earlier in the passage. This is not your own doing. Then the question is, like, well, what is the this? Well, the words grace and faith in this passage are both feminine Greek nouns. Why in the world does this matter? It matters because the fact that Paul chose to use this neuter word form means he's referring to the whole thing. He's not just saying the grace was not your own doing, but the faith was not your own doing. Even your faith is not the 1% you bring to the table. Even your faith is a gift from God. Why is that good news? Why is that important for you to know this evening? Well, there have been acrobats who have tried to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope through the years. And sometimes these acrobats gather pretty significant crowds. And sometimes they invite volunteers from the crowd to come and to be carried by the acrobat across the falls. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are observing this acrobat perform this incredible feat and he asked for a volunteer and for some wild crazy reason you don't understand like you raise your hand and you're you're getting ready to be carried across Niagara Falls now if you were in this position there would probably be times on the trip when you would be clinging more closely to the acrobat like you'd get scared when the the falls were more loud in the background, and you'd cling closely to him. There might be other times when your grip would loosen a little bit. But here's the thing. What gets you safely to the other side is not how tightly you are holding on to the acrobat, but how tightly he is holding on to you, how able he is to bring you to safety. This is incredible news because if your faith is in Jesus, even if it's the faith of a mustard seed, even if it wavers, even if you're struggling with doubts, Jesus's strength, that's, that's what matters. He's the one who's able to bring you to the other side. So if you're hearing this good news tonight, the reality is that Jesus is calling you to cling to him. He's calling you to hold on to him as he carries you to safety. <laughs> but you can know that your security and your joy are not dependent on the strength of your faith, but on the strength of your Savior. So we've seen the bad news and the good news. There's one more thing we need to see before we wrap up. We need to see the new kind of life that can flow out of this good news when we receive it by faith. Look again at what it says in verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. That we should walk in them the word that's translated workmanship is the greek word poiema and you might even be able to hear just as i say that that it's related to our english word poem and in the next line when it talks about being created in christ jesus for good works it's not talking about the general sense in which everyone is created by god that's certainly true but a new creation that has come for those who are in christ So Christians, if you're a Christian here this evening, the reality is we still struggle with sin and with shame and with fear and with doubts and with anxiety. And although this good news of verses 4 through 9 that we've been discussing really is true of you, it can often feel like these circumstances of our lives or the circumstances of our hearts are are ultimate. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that you are not your sexual sin. You are not your anxiety. You are not the horrible thing that someone has done to you. You are not your pride. You are not your laziness. You are not your anger. These things do not ultimately define you. You are God's workmanship. Maybe some of y'all have heard the phrase, she's a piece of work, right? Or, or he's a piece of work. If, if someone says about you that you're a piece of work, uh, they're not complimenting you. They're, they're saying well, that person is a mess. Well, when the holy, holy, holy God who created heaven and earth, when he looks at his people in Jesus Christ, he does not say, what a piece of work. He says, what a piece of art. You're his poema, his workmanship, his his poem, this beautiful thing that he has made new through Jesus Christ. And if you know that that is true, here's the big theme of this series. If you know that that is true about you, you can begin to become who you are. You can begin to live into that reality, or in the terms of this passage, you you can begin to walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to do. And this idea of walking in good works is a kind of bookend to the whole passage, because it starts by talking about how we were dead in our sins. We were walking in our trespasses, following the course of this world, but now we can walk in these good works that God has prepared beforehand. What are these good works? The good works of repentance, the good works of fighting your sin, of resisting temptation, of Loving God and worshiping him and reading his word and loving your neighbors, the list is long. Uh, Many of you all know that I'm a pretty big fan of the Lord of the Rings. And the truth of the matter is, you should be pretty proud of me that I haven't referenced the Lord of the Rings yet up to this point in the semester. But uh, that is about to change. Because in the movie adaptations of the Lord of the Rings, one of the major characters is this guy Aragorn. And Aragorn is descended from the ancient kings of old. But he's not living in light of that reality, at least in the movies. Until he comes into contact with the elf lord Elrond, who gives him this ancient sword and reminds him that he has this great destiny, that he is called to be the king of the age of men, and yet Aragorn is fearful of that destiny because of the ways that his distant ancestors failed. He wasn't living in light of this new noble purpose that really did belong to him. Friends, I think many of you know deep down, if, if, especially if you know Jesus, that you were made for more than Spending countless hours on video games and TikTok. I'm not saying that's all bad. You, you were made for more than a fun night on Green Street. You were made for more than a good GPA or landing a good job at the end of college. Those things might not be bad, but you were made for so much more. God has prepared these good works for you to do. He has a noble purpose for your life. And you can start to live into that even today. Uh, I don't know what those specific good works for you are. I know that it's going to generally look like loving God and loving your neighbors. But when we are willing to climb deep down into the valley, to look with open eyes at the gravity of our situation apart from Jesus, when we see the incredible good news that is on offer for us that we can receive by faith, why wouldn't we want to live in a way that honors God with everything we have. Why wouldn't we want to fulfill these good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do? Here's the message of this passage as we wrap up. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God sent Jesus to die and then to rise so that you could rise to new life, so that you could share in the eternal life that he earned. You were a slave. You were in bondage to the devil, to the course of this world, but God has set you free. He's made you his son, his heir, his child in whom he delights. He's intervened to bring you out of the old creation, out of the influence of the world into a new creation where you can actually exhibit what that new creation is like. You can put that on display with your very life and there's no greater purpose for which you could live in the whole world y'all please pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are so kind, you are so merciful to show us the gravity of our situation. And yet you are also so kind and so merciful and so powerful that you didn't leave us stuck where we were, Uh, that you lifted us up out of the miry bog and you've set our feet upon the rock. You've given us a new song to sing, a new purpose in our lives. God, whether someone is here tonight and hearing this good news for the first time or the thousandth time, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enable us to respond with faith. And flowing out of your great mercy, would we be people that display what the new creation is like, and to walk in the good works that you've prepared beforehand for us to do. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.